Ladies and gentlemen, I am pleased to introduce today's guest speaker. Break and enters, robberies and swarmings, traffic fatalities, arson, violent crimes, these are but a few of the issues that the more than 5,500 police officers of the Toronto Police Service deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. How do you serve and protect our city's large and diverse population in a way that instills confidence, builds community, and keeps crime statistics comparatively low? You call the chief. It would seem that our city's chief of police was born to be top cop. A lifelong Torontonian, Chief Bill Blair started young. He worked the police beats, tackled assignments in the homicide squad, hold-up squad, and fraud squad. He also served with the Sex Crimes Unit, the Guns and Gangs Unit, and the Repeat Offender Program. He quite simply lives and breathes policing. So when he became chief in 2005, he set out to enhance the Toronto Police Service based on his on-the-ground experience as an officer and as a resident. He oversaw the development of the Toronto Anti-Violence Intervention Strategy to combat violent crime. Community policing has also received a lot of the Chief's attention. And speaking of attention, he is certainly getting his fair share these days, which is why he is here today to talk about the current state of policing in Toronto, going beyond the headlines to share his perspectives and opinions on key policing issues. Chief Blair, the Canadian Club of Toronto's podium, Canada's podium of record, is yours. Thank you very much, and thank you, Gordon, for that, that, that very generous uh, introduction. As a matter of fact, I, that's perhaps the best I've been introduced, and I have to say I'm quite honoured, and I am very honoured to have the opportunity to come here to address the Canadian Club. And you have a long and storied history of remarkable speakers, and quite frankly, I'm humbled to join that list. But I was very relieved when you asked me to come and speak about something near and dear to my heart, which is policing in the city of Toronto. But quite frankly, I'd like to speak, if I may, to begin with, not necessarily about, the, about policing the city, but about the city itself and what a remarkable city that this is. Now, I could tell you all sorts of policing stories because every police officer has lots of stories, and some of them would even be true. <clears throat> but I think I'd like to begin by talking about this remarkable city of which I have the privilege of being a police officer and the police chief. Toronto, as you all know, is one of the most diverse cities in the world. People have come from all over the world. They speak every language. They know every culture, and they practice every faith tradition. And yet they come here to live in peace and in harmony and in safety. And Toronto is, whether we recognize it or not, recognized throughout the world as a city that works, a city where, it, with its diversity, it remains one of the most livable and safe places anywhere. And I was asked just, just this past summer to come to London, England, by the, the mayor of London, Boris Johnson. And I was asked to speak at a global cities conference. And he asked if I would come and I would speak about what makes Toronto such a safe and livable city, with, with all of its extraordinary diversity and the challenges that every large city faces. And there were mayors and police chiefs from other cities from around the world, and all of them had preceded me to the podium, and all of them spoke about you know, all the remarkable strategies that they employ and how brilliant their police leadership was. And I was thinking before I went up that, that you know, I could go up and say essentially the same things, because Toronto is among those cities perhaps the safest and the most livable place of all. And I thought I could get up and I could explain that, that we have a remarkable safe city, and it's because we have brilliant police leadership. We do, by the way, but that wasn't, in my mind, the reason. 
And I think what makes Toronto such an extraordinarily livable place is something I'd just like to talk about briefly. And it's the social cohesion of our city. One of the things that is most extraordinary about the city of Toronto is the way in which our neighborhoods work, the way in which people live together, the way in which we look upon our neighbors and treat our neighbors, the way in which we embrace our pluralism, people coming from different cultures and from different faith traditions, the way in which we look out for each other. And I think the police play a significant role in this, but it's not the lead role. It's not even the most important role by a long shot. The, the greatest role, and when I'm asked, why is Toronto such a remarkably safe and livable city? I said, first of all, if you want a city like Toronto, you're going to have to start off with close to 3 million Torontonians. And they're going to have to look upon their city the way Torontonians look upon their city, as a place of neighborhoods, a place where we look out for each other. And our neighborhoods can be remarkably safe. And I always know when I'm going into a safe neighborhood. It's a neighborhood where if a kid falls off a bike, people come out from three different houses to see if the kid's okay. Where we can walk down the street in uniform and the neighbors will engage with us and say hello. Where people are on their front steps and in their front yards and willing and able to talk to each other and to talk to us. And it is an element of social cohesion. And I think the best example I can share with you of that is not necessarily by comparing the city of Toronto to all other cities, but let me just for a moment speak about the cities of Windsor and Detroit. And I say this with a certain amount of trepidation because I don't mean to, to be critical of the city of Detroit. But the city of Detroit is a city of nearly three quarters of a million people. They're located on one side of the Detroit River. On the other side is another city, the city of Windsor, with a quarter of a million people. So you've got 250,000 or so on one side and 750,000 on the other. These are two cities separated by less than a kilometer of water, but joined by a bridge and a tunnel. There are good people on both sides of that river. There are competent police services on both sides of that river. I will acknowledge there's a lot more guns on one side than on the other. But in the city of, of Detroit, over a three-year period, they had over 1,100 murders. And in the city of Windsor, during that same period of time, they had one. And the difference is so stark. The contrast is so remarkable that there has to be an explanation beyond competent policing. And I believe that that explanation is the level of inclusion that our cities face, or our cities have, versus other cities. And when you come to the city of Toronto, you can see how that works. And I believe that the police service can play a significant role in creating a culture of inclusion within our city on how we treat our, our neighbors, on how we treat our communities, on how we treat those most disadvantaged, those who suffer from exclusion, those who suffer from poverty, lack of opportunity, unemployment, poor housing. In, in those neighborhoods, we have to do the most amount of work because in those neighborhoods, that's where we see the highest rates of victimization. That's where we see young people not realizing their full potential. And that's where we see newcomers and the elderly and the poor suffering the greatest. And so we have, have made a commitment in the City of Toronto, not just in the police service, but in the City of Toronto, to concentrate our efforts in those places, to make a difference in those places, to make them more livable places. And in the Toronto Police Service, we recognize that if we fail to ensure that the young people in those communities feel part of the greater society, feel included, feel respected, if we don't provide them with the support that they need to realize their potential, then we cannot succeed in keeping the city safe. But where we work together, where we make a difference, and where we address some of the challenges to that social cohesion, things like unemployment, things like lack of opportunity for young people, things like retail neighborhoods, like we have 160 neighborhoods with 160 main streets. And in those main streets, if those retail communities are not successful and vibrant and healthy and safe, people won't use them. And if we don't support them, then those neighborhoods will suffer. If we don't make sure 
that young people have the opportunities that they need in school and in employment and to be treated with respect and a sense of inclusion, then those neighborhoods will not remain safe places or become safe places. And so we've worked really hard in those communities, not just simply to enforce the law, but to uphold the law and to uphold our values as a city and as a society. Nine years ago, nearly nine years ago, when I became the chief, I went to the then premier and the then mayor of the city and said, I want to change the way in which we're policing our communities. Instead of just focusing on enforcement, and we do a lot of enforcement, and that's important because there are individuals, unfortunately, who require the application of the law and, and, and to be held to account for their criminal actions and their victimization of others. But we wanted to change the equation. We wanted to change our relationship with the people in our most challenged communities. And so what I wanted to do was put my people in uniform, put my people in uniform out walking in those neighborhoods, talking to those residents, connecting with those kids. We put 50 of our police officers into schools. With the help of Marianne Chambers, who's here today, we went out and hired 150 young people from those neighborhoods. We call it the Youth and Policing Initiative, a remarkable program where we go into that community and we hire kids from the most challenged neighborhoods, not bad kids, great kids, kids with great potential. And we do it every year. We've, we've done it every year now for, for seven years. And, and frankly, there's a lot of work, in, uh, work going on right now to significantly in, uh, increase the number of kids that we give that opportunity. And, and hopefully we'll be able to speak of that in the, in, the, in the coming months. But it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference in those communities when we demonstrate to the young people in those neighborhoods that they are respected, that they are included. And when newcomers come to this country, when we provide them with support, when we provide them with settlement services, when they, we let them know that they are respected and welcome in our communities, it changes how people live and it changes how people see themselves and it makes our city a safe place. And so I think when we talk about policing in the city of Toronto, I could talk to you about all the tactics and strategies that we employ as a police service. And I believe you have a very competent police service. And I can tell you with absolute assuredness that I have 5,500 police officers and nearly over 2,000 civilian employees who are absolutely committed to serving and protecting the people of Toronto. But if it's only the police enforcing the law, then we will not be successful in making this and keeping this a remarkably safe and livable place. It is only through a shared commitment from all of us to our communities, to our neighborhoods, to our neighbors, that we can continue to make the city of Toronto a safe place. And, and so I think that's where we should focus our efforts. And that's where the Toronto Police Service is focusing their efforts. I'll give you an example of that. We have certain gang activity in Toronto. People who engage in gang violence and carry guns and are often involved in such things as drug trafficking and gun running, but are, are unfortunately also involved in, in acts of violence where, where young people are, are, are injured and losing their lives to gun violence. When the, that's happening, and we, we have information and intelligence about that happening, we'll undertake large-scale investigations and we'll engage in a number of investigative techniques. Some of it's on surveillance, some of it may involve wiretap or the use of agents or informants. And we'll spend months, sometimes as much as a year, gathering evidence to collect, to prosecute the individuals who we believe are responsible for that. In the past, we would just go into the community, kick down a hundred doors, frankly terrify everybody that lived in those communities, arrest the people we believe responsible for that criminal behavior and take them out of the community. And what we found is that that was more traumatic than curing. That, that did not help as much as we needed it to help. It was important to get those dangerous individuals out of the community, but if that's all we did, we didn't do enough. And what we saw is very quickly a return to violence and victimization in those neighborhoods. And so we changed our tactic entirely. We still go in and do those investigations. We still go in and make those arrests. But then we send 
uniform officers into that neighborhood to connect with the people that live there, to demonstrate our support for them, to help them return to a sense of safety and to security, to explain to them what has transpired and what they can expect from us, and to make a commitment to them that we will be there with them. They'll help, we'll help them use their public space. They, they, if we want them to take their kids to the park. We want them to come out and engage with their neighbors, and we need them to come out and engage with us. And so we work really hard to restore a sense of safety and security in those neighborhoods. And when we've done that, we put a community back on its feet. You can imagine how traumatic it is at 5 o'clock in the morning when several doors in your apartment building are, are caved in by the police, and there's the sound of concussion grenades and people being dragged from their apartments. It's very, very traumatic, frightening, and it causes people to be afraid of their own neighborhood. And they lose their self sense of confidence, and they lose their sense of safety in their own neighborhood. And so we work to restore that. And when we do that, and when we can demonstrate to them that we care about their kids, we care about their safety, and we care about the livability of their neighborhoods, it makes a difference in those communities. And we have been working tirelessly on that for several years in the City of Toronto, and I am pleased to be able to tell you that we have seen a reduction in violence and victimization right across the city, but perhaps most importantly, in those neighborhoods that were most victimized, where the greatest level of violence was taking place. And we've been able to build upon better relationships in there to, to earn the people's trust in there. And I think one of the most important areas of progress for us, but also an area where we'll always have lots of work to do, is among young people. And going into the schools and bringing young people into our organization and giving them opportunities and demonstrating through the over 200 programs that we have working with young people, our commitment to them and to their success, that I think is, is going to be the secret to keeping the city safe and the contribution that the Toronto Police Service can make. And I would share with all of you, if it's only an issue of policing, you can't arrest your way out of these challenges. It has to be a commitment from everyone in the city, a commitment in every neighborhood, in every community, in every school, in every playground, in every place. We all have to make that commitment to our youth and to our city if we're going to enjoy an incredibly livable place as Toronto is today. There's a couple of other issues I, I, I also wanted to speak to you about. One of the greatest challenges facing police services, not just in Toronto, but right across North America and around the world, is the challenge that we have in serving a population suffering from mental health or emotional disturbance. And we've had a number of incidents, and, and, and I can't get into the particulars. There are, there's an inquest going on, and there was a very tragic incident that occurred this summer. But it highlighted for all Torontonians and for all of us, and certainly for me, the importance of ensuring that we do everything possible to provide safe response to those who are suffering emotional disturbance and mental illness in our community. You know, a number of years ago, those who were suffering from mental illness were deinstitutionalized and, and, and served in the community, and that's a good thing. But it placed a tremendous burden upon the police, and over 20,000 times a year, the police respond to calls for people who are suffering from emotional disturbance. Now, we give our people very extensive training and the best training, the best direction, the best tools we possibly can to enable them and, and, and to equip them to respond to these very, very difficult and dangerous situations. But notwithstanding our best efforts so far, we have faced challenges and tragedies. And so we remain committed. And there was an incident that occurred earlier this summer. And, and quite frankly, in response to that incident, you know, it, was, it was really quite remarkable. And I can't speak specifically about the incident itself. But, but I will tell you, shortly after midnight and the last weekend in July, I, got a, I received a phone call at home from one of my duty inspectors to tell me that we had just shot a young man. And, he, and as he given me the particulars of that event, he told me, go to, the, to your computer now and click on this particular YouTube uh, address 
and you can watch the video of it. There were 17 cell phones videotaping that event, four cameras in the streetcar itself and one on the wall recording it. There were 22 recordings in total of that particular event, and it was instantly uploaded and being watched by thousands 15 minutes after the event took place. And, and that in and of itself presents some interesting challenges for the city and for your police chief. And so the next day, I undertook to do a number of things. I suspended the officer, which was, frankly, without precedent, but the right thing to do. I contacted the family, and I've met with the family. That was also somewhat without precedent against the advice of, of legal counsel, but still the right thing to do. And I, I recognize that I have a responsibility in all of these cases to look at our policies, our procedures, our training, and our equipment, and to look at the conduct of our officers. And I felt under these extraordinary circumstances, in order to be worthy of the people's trust, I would go above and beyond what the law required, and I went out and hired uh, Justice Iacobucci, a retired Supreme Court of Canada judge, and I asked him to do that work on my behalf. I've given him absolutely unfettered freedom to look at anything he thinks is appropriate to look at, to make any recommendations that, that he feels is appropriate, and, and I'm, we're providing with every bit of support that we can because it's important enough that we have to do whatever is required to ensure that the police response to these tremendously difficult and challenging, sometimes dangerous and sometimes tragic events is our very, very best. And so we've undertaken to do that, and I'm very confident that the results of that will be worthy of the people of Toronto, but I share that with you simply because I think it's so important that the people trust that we are willing and able to look at anything and everything to do this right, because it needs to be done right. And, and we have that obligation to the most vulnerable people in our society, and sometimes people suffering from mental illness and emotional disturbance are among the most vulnerable, and to their families, and to their friends, to their communities, and to the city. We have that obligation, and I intend to fulfill that obligation. There's another issue I wanted to very, I'll speak with a certain amount of caution on this. Um, one of the investigations we did, we did earlier this year involved alleged gang activity in the west end of the city. And at the conclusion of that investigation, we, a number of young people were arrested, a number of firearms were seized, a number of very significant charges were laid, um, and I stepped forward to announce that. But as this was towards the end of June, this is Project Traveler, there were a number of other questions of, of peripheral issues that were put to me. And I just wanted to make some explanation to you as to why I took the position I did with respect to the disclosure of that information. You know, the police are given extraordinary powers. We are given the, the, the powers to conduct investigations. We are given the, the powers to, to, to undertake surveillance on people, to, to listen to their conversations, to interrogate, to, to search, to gather information and to gather evidence. And we are not given those extraordinary powers to gossip. We're not given those extraordinary powers to, 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 to feed to the press. And quite frankly, in my opinion, there's a great difference between the public interest and what the public's interested in. But I also wanted to assure the people of Toronto that when there is evidence of wrongdoing, we will leave no stone unturned, that we will pursue every avenue of investigation that is required to do our jobs and to uphold the law, and that that will be done without fear and without favor. It will be done in the right way. But the evidence we gather is only evidence to be placed in before the courts. And in this case, that is what we have done. We have conducted those investigations, we have gathered that information, and we have placed it quite appropriately before the courts. That's where it belongs. Integrity in my business and contingent upon us upholding the laws. And the law gives us the authority to gather that information, and the law 
tells me exactly what I'm supposed to do with it, and that's put it before the courts. And it is the court's job and the court's determination as to what information should or should not be presented as evidence in court or made public. And that's a process that's going on right now. But I wanted to share that with you. I'm not going to speak about any of that investigation or any of that evidence, but I wanted to, to assure you all that the Toronto Police Service will do its job, and I'll make sure it does its job, and that we will conduct all investigations, leave no stone unturned. We will conduct ourselves with integrity, and we will do it without fear or favor of anyone, and that we'll use the evidence that we gather appropriately and put it before the courts. And finally, and I say finally not because I'm almost finished, but to give you all hope, I wanted to speak to you about one of the most significant issues facing the City of Toronto today. Not just the City of Toronto, but its surrounding regions. And I grew up in this city, and I, I, I lived for most of my life out in Scarborough, and so I'm quite familiar with this particular challenge as well. But you know, there's been some polling done in the city recently, and we've asked people, what's the great, greatest challenge facing the city? And interestingly enough, and it won't come as a surprise to any of you who, who, who today made the extraordinary journey of getting to the Royal York Hotel from anywhere in this city, that the biggest issue facing the city as identified by its citizens, is its gridlock. This is getting to be a very difficult city to get around. And quite frankly, I, I am always a little bit embarrassed and frustrated by this because I go to a, a lot of different places and people say to me, sorry I was late, but I got up and hung up in traffic. And sometimes I'm late and I have to apologize to people. And as I come in the room, I often think, boy, traffic's bad. Somebody should do something about this. And then I realize that would be me, but not just me. We all have a responsibility here. And so uh, the Board of Trade, for example, has told us that, that gridlock is costing the City of Toronto economically almost $6 billion a year. But I think we also know it's costing us more than dollars. It's costing us in the quality of our lives. It's restricting some of the things we can do and would want to do. It restricts where people can live, where they can work, what's, what activities and social activities they're going to, to go on. And we're all spending an inordinate and, and frankly, an inappropriate and unnecessary long time um, I'm stuck in, in traffic. And so one of the things I wanted to share with you is some, some of the things that we are doing. Um, we've, I've, we've put on a very significant effort to ensure that our enforcement is in, intended not just simply to enforce the law, because quite frankly, enforcement only for the sake of enforcement uh, doesn't make much sense. But we enforce the laws, first of all, to keep our roads safe. But just as importantly, we're beginning to focus our enforcement on helping move some people around. I know Councillor Stinson and I had some conversations about this very thing just a few weeks ago because of some of the enormous challenges we're facing on King Street. You know, we've built the beautiful Liberty Village and, and all sorts of lovely condominiums all along the southwest part of the city and along King Street, and all of those people spill out of those towers every day, and they walk up to King Street to get on the streetcar, and there's 60 people who can get on the streetcar, and there's 60,000 people sitting at the, standing at the, at the streetcar stop, and so we've got to move those people. And we've got to move them efficiently, otherwise that neighborhood's not going to work. And if that neighborhood's not going to work, then we're going to have all sorts of other problems in that neighborhood. So moving people efficiency is important. One of the challenges we're facing in the Toronto Police Service is the cost of policing. We have a responsibility. We spend your dollars. Quite frankly, we spend a lot of your dollars for policing this city. And I am very mindful that we have to give you the best possible return on your investment and we have to be efficient with your dollars. Not only efficient, but economical with your dollars. And so when I look at enforcing the law with respect to moving people efficiently around the city, and I go up to an intersection like Young and Bloor. Young and Bloor, there's some construction taking place there right now, and so the, one of the northbound lanes is, is gone to construction. So we're down to one. And during the rush hour, there's no right or no left turn. But if the five cars in front of you are, are all intent on making an illegal turn, and three of them turn right and two of them turn left, 
you're going to sit there through, through three or four lights before you can get through going north. You're going to be 10 minutes late getting home. Now, if I send a cop up there, I've got to have one cop on the, on, on the east side of Bloor Street and one cop on the west side of Bloor Street because they might turn right or left. And when we pull a car over to give them the ticket for making that turn, then we're going to take out a lane of traffic on Bloor Street. That's going to make a whole bunch of other people late for getting home, the ones that are going east and west. And so that's a problem, and it doesn't make any sense. And people will take the chance, quite frankly, because the likelihood of there being a cop on that corner in a position, not writing a ticket for somebody else already, to give you that ticket is pretty small. And so people take the chance. There's a better way. And quite frankly, in almost every other major city of the world, they do photo enforcement. You can put a camera on that, that intersection. And you can put up a, a sign that no one could miss that says, if you make this turn, left or right, if you go through this red light or if you, you box up this intersection, you're going to get a ticket. Most smart people will not make the turn, will not box the intersection, and we're all going to get home 10 minutes earlier. And quite frankly, those who would insist on making the turn will happily pay for the box for the rest of us. And then I don't have to tie up a really expensive resource, a police officer, doing work that, that there is a far more efficient and effective way of doing that work. I don't have to send the court to testify. And ultimately, what is our intent? Is it to generate a lot of revenue from traffic tickets and to give people a lot of tickets? And the answer is no. Our intent is to keep our roads safe and to keep, get people home on time. And so there is a better way. And it's going to require some decisions, decisions at the political level, decisions from the city. That the use of, of technology is a far more effective way of getting that job done. And so it's just simply one of the things I think we need to have a discussion about, an adult conversation about how to make this city work. And there are a lot of investments that we need to make. And quite frankly, there are some things that we're just going to have to do because they make sense. And it's the best way to get things done. And I like to always put that one out there because it strikes me as an almost an absurdity that we keep on using the most archaic way of dealing with that, putting a police officer or two police officers or three police officers on that intersection. Quite frankly, it just annoys a lot of people. And frankly, in my business, we could use the love. So I'm not terribly keen on, 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 on doing that unnecessarily. But there's a more efficient way. And, and I also wanted to assure you, because we are spending your dollars, we've taken a really good hard look at policing in this city. And for the past two years, I've been undertaking a review called the Chief's Internal Organizational Review. And we've looked at every aspect of our business. We've looked at how we answer radio calls. We've looked at how we conduct criminal investigations, how we use technology, and how we use our people. And we're working very, very hard to make sure that we do it as efficiently as possible. Now, we've gone through a, a, a period of austerity, and we've been in a bit of a hiring freeze, which presents certain challenges to us. But let me tell you as well, there's opportunity in austerity. And in that austerity, we have had to take a good, hard look at how we do business. And I'll give you one example of something that really worked. Because I knew we were going to have fewer police officers to answer radio calls, I didn't want all of the cuts to take place in the front seat of a police car. And so I looked at our senior management structure, and I eliminated 10% of our senior management structure back in August of 2011. And although they were excellent people, and they were doing a good job, when they left, life went on. And we were able to, to accommodate their absence and change the way we were managing our business with a far leaner command and supervisory structure. And I, and I think that's our, our commitment and obligation to you. We have to be careful with your money. We have to get you the best value for your money. We're looking hard at everything we do and how we do it to make sure this is the most efficient, the most effective, and the most economical way to get this job done. But this is a remarkably complex city. But it's, it's also, as I've said, a remarkably safe and livable city. And we remain committed to keeping it that way. 
And I just want to assure all of you of our unwavering commitment to work with our diverse communities, to work with all of the people of our city, to keep it a city where people can come from all over the world and know that when they come to the city of Toronto, they will be treated with respect. They will be able to live lives of dignity. They'll be able to raise their children in a place where their kids can realize their full potential and become great citizens. And that we can go anywhere in the world and know that we come from one of the most safe and livable cities anywhere. Thank you all very much for your attention and for the invitation to be here with you today. Councillor, Prime Minister, friends all. Um, in life, there is nothing more terrifying than a corrupt police service that is capricious in the exercise of its authority. Uh, Chief Blair, you give so much to our city and you do so much for our greater community, but I think we'd all agree the most important thing you do is you lead, by example, the Toronto Police Service, known for integrity, independence, and an absolutely resolute commitment to the rule of law. For that, you have our thanks. And for being here, too. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jamie. Let me just echo uh, Jamie's comments. Uh, Chief Blair, thank you very much for being here today. We uh, often don't appreciate what it takes to serve and protect a community of three million people, and to you and to the entire police service, thank you for all that you do. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast live, or broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We're grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continued support. To learn more about our events, please visit our website at www.canadianclub.org. Thank you again for being here today. This meeting is now adjourned. Thank you.